one, two, and then it starts. Is this and then the, the rap song starts. Is this on the new Jay Z? No, this is on um, the Blueprint. Oh. Alright, yeah, this was um, this was like pre Beyonce. You know, Jay Z is a Sagittarius and Beyonce is a Virgo. And yes. I'm a Virgo with Sagittarius Moon and Rising. And so I feel like what is going on in their relationship is what is going on in my soul. There's just a lot of conflict, a lot of internal conflict. Great. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um. <laughs> episode seven because I did episode six part one and two okay so we're gonna call this episode seven you know what rhymes with seven heaven Devin Kevin (laughs) (laughs) um we're writers Levin that's not really a word is it eleven eleven no eleven not the number oh um I think it's pronounced Levin we've been watching the great British baking show um We've been we've been proving this morning. Yes. Getting ourselves ready for our Fourth of July activities. We put um, the podcast in the proving drawer and we just waited for it to rise. And I think we're I think we've got some good stuff to talk about today. We've proved long enough. Yes, we've proved long enough. We are going to now prove to you that we know what we talk what we're talking about. Or maybe not, honestly. <laughs> Honestly, this could go either way. <laughs> All right, well, let's jump in. Um, are you going to cut to that Jay-Z song, or are you just going to let me do the song? It depends. I'm gonna, I'll see. I'll see how it goes. It's sometimes like the magic just happens in the edit, you know? <laughs> um, all right, so we are going to start with an article that was just retweeted today by Literary Hub. Um, it's an older article. It's from... September 8th, 2016, by uh, Jonathan Sturgeon, uh, called How Individualism Conquered American Fiction. And I think it's a really prescient, really um, interesting read for, for on Independence Day. Right. Which is, I think, why they retweeted it. Right. I mean, I can take an educated <laughs> guess. Yeah. 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 Um, I like the subheading, which is on the imperial self and the rejection of social responsibility. So let's all think about not only drinking responsibly later today, (laughs) but upholding our own social responsibilities as writers, as citizens of the free world. Um, You know, let's not be assholes. Right, yeah, which I think is a lot of what this this article is arguing, although it is in a much more kind of theoretical framework. Correct. Right. So, um, this, I also was reading this 
on my phone first thing this morning, and I just kept saying, yes, yes, yes. It was, I've never agreed with an assessment so much as, uh, on American literature as I have yeah. with this this um, article. I mean, there are parts that I definitely actually do disagree with, but for the most part, I think that he's really putting words to something that I am also putting words to in my new column in Plowshares. Ooh, is that a plug? <laughs> <laughs> That's a plug. I have a new column in Plowshares. Um, check it out. My first article is coming out on July 11th, I think, and it's about um, uh, turn-of-the-century mill literature uh, and social realism. So, you know you're going to love that. Right. Okay, anyway, back to the non-plug information. So this article is about, it traces, it seems to me, to trace the roots of um, transcendentalism, right, which was like the first, like, big, huge American literary movement. Emerson, right? Mm -hmm. Emerson, who else was a transcendentalist? They talk about Whitman. Whitman. Mm-hmm. Um, who's probably the one that I'm most familiar with on there. And then there was the third. It was... I know they talked about Edith Wharton, but do they include her in that? She is... She falls, I think, on the good side in his assessment. Okay. And she's not really... She, I wouldn't necessarily call her a transcendentalist. She was more in the school with Henry James. James was the other one. They yeah. They talk about Henry James and... That he he should talk to James, Henry James, yeah. right? Which I, I love to read Henry James, but I think his assessment of Henry James is actually quite strong. So um, so they, they trace trans transcendentalism and this um, incorporation, what he refers to as an incorporation of the self in narratives, as um, in opposition to nature. Um, and they trace it through Jonathan Franzen and um, Jonathan Safran Foer, um, which is great. There's some... You know, I think that this is kind of a, you know, you eat your vegetables and you get dessert with this article because you have to read a lot of, about literary theory, mm -hmm. um, specifically in the 60s, which is what I'm really interested in. Um, and then you get your pudding of lots of really fucking sick Jonathan Franzen burns. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is where I really started to enjoy um, this article was when it particularly... Uh, roasted Jonathan Franzen like a 4th of July hot dog was where I really oh, yeah. got into it. Oh, yeah. It was sizzling. Yeah. It was sizzling on like, the spit. his weenie uh, was burnt. God, I would love to do that. Yeah. I would love to do that. You know. It's pretty gruesome, but yeah. I think that's probably the most gruesome act I would ever do. <laughs> um, so it starts off talking about Fukuyama and the end of history. Um, one critique I will say of this is that so much of Fukuyama's theory on the end of history um, is talking about liberal um, liberal democracy, liberal markets, capitalism, um, and that's such a huge crux of his article, while, while, or of his argument, whereas this article really just talks about the imperial idea of a narrator, the, the imperial component of the end of history, where the narrator, when we're looking at first-person free and direct discourse, the narrator is colonizing other people's minds, essentially colonizing nature. Nature is a really big theme in this. So just mm -hmm. like eating it up and then spinning it out only in service to the self, not as something that necessarily changes the self. And your flesh shall become a great poem. That's a Whitman quote. Yeah. Whitman is pretty guilty. Yeah. Of this. Yeah. 
Yeah. He's fucking indicted. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, why I think this is, first of all, I think this is really an important article because I think that there has been this acceptance of, um, narratives that privilege a very individualistic approach, right? We're all in first person or limited third, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, the stories are all about an evolution of a self rather than, you know, a connection with the community or um, nature or whatever it is. Yeah. So all of those elements are being used in service of the individual and his evolution, which yeah. wasn't how books were. Right. No, this is good. I yeah. like where this is going, our discussion of this. Um, okay. Yeah. Agree. I agree. Yeah. I, what I would like to say is I agree. I see where we're, I see where we're moving to, and right. I'm interested, and I'm in it. Right. So um, he also references this book that I've never read, but I'm going to read, called The Imperial Self, um, which is by, I think, this literary critic who was kind of um, just... Either, I think he was... It's Bloom. It's not Bloom. It's uh, Anderson. Quentin okay. Anderson. And I think he was, like, kind of um, debunked, or, you know, by Lionel Trilling, um, who I don't love, um, and Harold Bloom, and a bunch, you know, a bunch of people. But the Imperial Self, um, it says, is a critique of literary intellectualism that holds up because it is imaginative, but also the condition of the novel has not changed much, which I think is a really good comment on the kind of stagnation that comes when there's this individualistic imperial narrative at play because there's there can only be one outcome right which is that the person has changed correct and that's what we teach in creative writing classrooms um yeah essentially the coming of age mm -hmm. narrative mm -hmm. the epiphany yeah um blah, blah, blah. Emerson. I don't really care about Emerson. Yeah, I don't care about Emerson either. Does this anybody care about Emerson? Yeah. People mm -hmm. do. Yeah. So this is something, okay, well, I know that a lot a of, people care, of people care. A lot of people care about Henry James, so that's mm -hmm. the other big one, and a lot of motherfucking people care about Walt Women. Yeah. But... Emerson? I don't know. Yeah, you know who really likes Emerson is people like Jonathan Franzen. Wow. Yeah. Which, um, which you know, here now we're kind of going into the Jonathan Franzen sick burn segment of this. We should have a Jonathan Franzen sick burn segment of the podcast at all. Um, every episode. Every episode. We probably could get a sound effect, too, that's like... Sick burn, bruh. Like, yeah. so we, we could just use yeah. that as a sound effect. <laughs> hey guys, I just made the sound effect. Yeah, there needs to be like a. <laughs> Let's get that shit viral. Everyone yeah. start using that. Um, this is in reference to uh, Jonathan Franzen. He says In literature, the contemporary imperial self enjoys nothing more than the imaginative disintegration of nature and social life into chewable bits of matter and information. Which I haven't read purity, but freedom. Which is a great time. It's great to talk yeah. about freedom today. <laughs> is that's what it is. I I haven't read any Jonathan Franzen. Here comes the section of the podcast where I admit to not reading anything that we're talking about, but I don't feel guilty about not reading no, Franzen. No. I don't it's he's never appealed to me. He's not on my list. Um Here's the thing that happened with Jonathan Franzen. 
I think. He wrote a good book. The Corrections, really, it's pretty good. Okay. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be so grudging as to not allow him that. Okay. Um, and then he fashioned himself as the literary avant-garde, which it talks about later in this article. And he, and because of that, everyone around him trusted that he was a genius. That's my take on it. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to read the corrections because I promised myself I would not read any more books by white men. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm going to take your yeah. word for it, but I, it's not on my list. I'm yeah, don't do read it. it. It's yeah, really long. It. It's really long. Um, so then this article continues, the process, the, I'm sorry, the possessor of this self is a paranoid solipsist, a confused data analyst in service to a literary regime that lacks critical oversight. I love that, because that's also a burn in the publishing industry. Correct. Okay. So it continues on. Oh, here, do you want to read your favorite quote? Um, once you spot Franzen's ego at work, you'll remember it forever. Like a rare species of bird in the wild, it chirps in his every essay and short story and novel. Even his contract model of literary writing, which privileges an easygoing partnership between the reader and the writer, one predicated on trust and an asymmetrical distribution of goods, just seems like the Trans-Pacific Partnership of the Reader-Writer Agreements. Was that the one? Um, the first part was. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's really Like a good. rare bird. But I like that idea of once you spot the ego at work, because I feel like it kind of is like that sometimes when you're reading... Um, white dudes. Yeah, it's at first you want to be like, wow, this is really good. And then you hit a section where you're like, ooh, this is just really self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. And once you pick up on that, it colors the, re like, you can never go back to thinking this is really good. Yeah. It's, it's always going to be, it this just, is really self-indulgent. Jerking off. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's easy to confuse that, though, as, well, I guess, I don't want to say easy, but I can see how people would confuse that for genius, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. In uh, this stage of our America, I can see how people would think that extensive jerking off onto the page is genius. Yeah, and I think that also our, the leader of the free world, the free air quotes world is um a solipsist king baby the king baby right solipsist so i mean it, it is twitter is um just masturbatory yeah oh yeah and nonsense correct yeah um and some people might find that to be genius which is the true unfortunate state of our happy birthday, America. It's dark. We're gonna yeah, be going. I think by dark. the end of this, we're gonna be like we really might upset. Cry. We might yeah. be upset. Um, and you know, I think that we could also address the fact that this is your favorite holiday, and you're is. not you're not feeling it. For the first time in my 32 years of age, this Aries does not feel like setting shit on fire and dancing in a bikini. And let me tell you, that's, that's a tragedy. Rough. Yeah, that's a tragedy. We're in it's dark rough. days. This yeah. is dark days. We can't party. Yeah. I mean, I might feel better once I have a hot dog, but to be honest with you, I like have... I'm not even wearing red, white, or blue. No, you're wearing pink. And I hate you're the color pink. color-blocking pink. Right yeah. Now. Yeah. <laughs> My least favorite color. 
Anyway. Um, so there's also this great quote. Um, he talks about, so there's this really interesting thing that I didn't know, which is that Nell Zink and Jonathan Franzen had, like, a friendship and then a falling out. Mm. Um, which, okay, I would also like to say that a certain professor of mine goes bird watching with Jonathan Franzen very frequently. Um, and there is... Hit us up on Friends of the Podcast if you know which one it is. Yes. Hint, Tatiana went to UC Riverside, Uh Texas Tech University, Uh and SUNY New York. CUNY. CUNY CUNY Hunter. CUNY Hunter. Yeah. So hit us up if you think you know who goes bird watching with Jonathan Branson. Yeah. It's a male. It's a white male. Can you believe it? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But every time I think about these two men looking at birds, it's... um, it just, it's upsetting. It's just, it just, like, it makes my throat clench. Clench. Anyway. Anyway, so he had this relationship with Nell Zink, who I've honestly never read her work, but her books always look really good. Um, really great design. Um, I almost bought one a few days ago when I was at Skylight Books in Los Feliz. Um, so anyway, they had this friendship, and they were writing letters to each other, and this is really good. I'm just going to read this whole paragraph, because he really gets some, some sick burns in here. There are strong contemporary American-born novelists who challenge the ethic of incorporation. So again, going back to this idea that um, that this narrative, that first-person, free and direct writing incorporates the human into this kind of impermeable, um, antisocial kind of being. Um, One of these offers what Franzen would call a delicious irony. He loves the word delicious, which is probably the strongest evidence I've offered for my argument. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the work of Nell Zink, the would-be acolyte of Franzen, who firmly rejected his attempt to swallow her wholesale. The story is now somewhat famous. I did not know about it. Um, Zink, after a birding adventure, began writing letters to Franzen and vice versa, which hinted at her wit and narrative resources. After he failed to get her published, she found her way to a small press and literary, literary acclaim without his help. Later in an interview at Vice, upon the publication of Mislaid, her second novel, Zink observed something about Franzen. So this is a quote from Zink. In a weird, contradictory sense, he feels like he's the avant-garde. People look to the tall white guys to be our avant-garde because they're the ones who are not obligated to be political. In the sense of advancing some agenda, there's no great collective injustice that Franzen is trying to write. You know, R-I-G-H-T. He's the one who can say, okay, I'm in good condition. I can talk about the novel. It's easy for anyone to adopt that pose. It's just a pose. It's an artistic position. True. Very true. Yeah, that is... uh... Very true. And I think that it really speaks, too, to the idea that the, gr- the great American novels, uh, novelists like Franzen and what's considered a great American novel and what's been kind of, like, standardized as good practice in American novels, which is a singular narrative voice um, and, like, an evolution of consciousness, is really um, privileging a very specific type of person who d- is not concerned about their material racial or, um, you know, ethnic or sexuality, any of those concerns. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all I say about that. But I do talk a little bit more about it from a historical standpoint. (laughs) And, and, uh, 
and it's specifically about women and why um, women were um, kind of at women in the labor movement were kind of at the forefront of social realism. In my article in Plowshares, July eleventh, eleventh, jagging out. Sick burn, <laughs> sick burn, friends. Yeah, um, check it out. Check it out. Do you need some more wine? Um, I'm okay right now. Right. What should we talk about next? Um, poet laureate. Yeah. Uh, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Hold as let's uh, so make sure it's still recording. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so. Speaking of social responsibility and how writing and literature can um, help affect, that's with an A, change for our entire nation, mm -hmm. world, really, um, let's talk about the new Poet Laureate. Tracy K. Smith. Yeah. What's up? Yeah. So. She's really pretty. Yeah, she's really great. And this, like, picture, I mean, she looks... Like a poet laureate. I mean, she's standing in front of the Capitol building. Yeah, it's beautiful. So, yeah. It's really, really nice. She's like, um, I run this place now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in charge. I'm a fucking poet. Um, so Tracy K. Smith is our new poet laureate. Let's um, march through a couple quick facts, if you don't know Tracy K. Smith. Author, poet, four books, teaches at Princeton University, African American, young. young. 45. 45. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, that wasn't planned. That wasn't. We're ad living. Uh, 45. Um, so this is pretty special. Everybody's really excited. Of course, she's a woman. So again, we're excited. Um, a woman of color. I was, she's also a Californian. Yeah. Shout out. We're recording live from Highland Park, California today. Um, we, she's a Northern Californian, but we love Californians equally. Yeah. Well, north, south, just perhaps not inland. We're not. No, I love inland, but not San Francisco. And she's between San Francisco and Sacramento and Fairfield, so I'm okay with her. Okay. I don't, I mean, all right. Have you met someone from the Bay Area? Yeah, but I was saying <laughs> that the people that I don't like, I'm looking at, like, Bakersfield. Oh, okay. I don't uh, know anyone from Bakersfield. Like, river people. River people. River rats. Oh, like the people who go to like... Lake Havasu. I was going to say Lake Havasu. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There are part, you know... I would love to go to Lake Havasu. Well, then. I would probably die. I would get so drunk and I would fall off a boat and die. Podcast over. Um, I'm going to Lake Havasu. You should be there right now. You know oh, what Jesus. Lake Havasu's favorite holiday is too? Is the 4th of July. 4th of July. God, right. it's probably really lit over there. Yeah, it's... Um, People are not even wearing life vests. Like, it is out of control. People are just drowning and they're drunk. Do you know how many I, people die? I don't know the exact number, but I've read articles of, like, the amount of people who die on the la on lakes and rivers on 4th of July. Yeah, I would die. I don't think it would be a bad way to go, honestly. Just slowly, <laughs> drunkenly drowning. Just, like, <laughs> on beer, the 4th of July. <laughs> just, like, beer-bonging to heaven. Beer-bonging yeah. a stairway to heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. cool. Um, anyway, she is Californian, and she is young. I, our last poet laureate was also a Californian, Juan Felipe Herrera, and I really... Loved him. Love him. UCR, uh, emer emeritus, emeritus? How do you say emeritus? I thought it was 
emeritus. Not how emeritus? do you say emeritus? That's good. Yeah. That's a, emeritus. Uh, we don't need no man. Juan Felipe Herrera. I will also say that I did not know how the poet laureate was picked, so I googled it. Oh, I don't enlighten us. Okay, so it's the library that chief librarian at the Library of Congress consults with major figures in the, the How many books world. have been checked out? How, yeah, she just looks. Uh, do people check out books from the Library of Congress? I don't even I, know. Yeah, do they, I think they just check out the Bill of Rights or something. Okay. Um, but she consults with like a bunch of major poets and publishers, and then she consults with the previous poet laureate, Juan Felipe Herrera. Wonderful. And I 100% that he think he was behind her. Californians. Yeah. Um, and Juan Felipe Herrera, have you, did you ever get to, like, meet him or see him speak or anything? No, but have I have friends, friends, I have friends who have worked with him. He, um, is a lovely, a bit scattered, I think, sometimes. I think he's, like, a lovely, wonderful man. Yeah. I really love Juan Felipe Herrera. He came to Texas Tech, and he spoke at Texas Tech, um, and... I was really excited. I wore my Santa Maria. I wore my Santa Maria sweatshirt because Juan Felipe Herrera did spend a small portion of time in Santa Maria oh, um, because that. he was a field worker and like grew up oh, in the yeah. field. And mm -hmm. so I was like really excited, like probably like pointing to my Santa Maria sweatshirt and like turning around to the back of it saying California. Like I was like, look. Um, he was wonderful and nice. And what I loved so much about him was that he was very interested in the poet. Like, a poet is a real person, and poets need to start talking about real people on the street mm -hmm. in the world. Like, they need to stop talking about this, um, kind of what we were just talking about with this Jonathan Franzen thing. Yeah, totally. Stop talking about, like, a poet or a person walking in nature and, like, realizing its being. Like, talk about street signs, talk about, um, people walking around and waiting at a stoplight like there is real life is happening and we mm. need to bring poetry back to real life yeah um, absolutely so it's making making writing and readership proletariat again um, nice. Mm. Nice. <laughs> um so there's a little interview in the los angeles times that was conducted by carolyn kellogg who i think is also a poet yeah that sounds right yeah um she's also a poet and so, you know, they ask her the usual questions, like, you're a really young poet laureate. Um, I talk about public engagement. I kind of want to just jump to the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, what I also think is interesting, I'm going to do a quick pause before we jump to the end. Tracy K. Smith is, uh, she started Cave Canem, which is a community, a retreat for black poets, um, similar to Kundaman? Kundaman? How do you say that? For Asian American poets? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, there's a whole writer, uh, well, writer... Zona, too. Is that for... That's for people of color. I think yeah. that's, like, associated with Juno Diaz. So, Cave Canem, um, she's responsible for, which is, which is great, because part of being the Poet Laureate is this idea of community engagement. So she's already got a heads up on that because she started this retreat that's for, uh, specifically for black poets in the community. Um, what I think is interesting is this last question that Carolyn Kellogg asks Tracy K. Smith, 
which is, our current conversation is so racially charged. What role do you think poetry can have to play in that? Does it have a responsibility? Um, I kind of hate this question, but I love it at the same time. Of course, writers have a responsibility. Absolutely. What do you think about that? You were, we've talked about this before, but, like, writers have, like... Here's... Okay, here's what I think, and here's... Let's talk about this bef after we read this section, so people kind of have a... Because I think... Because I want to I wanna talk about this a little bit more. We're going to unpack for you here um, at Sutter Home Companion. Okay, so... I'm not going to read uh, Tracy K. Smith's entire response, but I'm going to read uh, part of it. Um, so she says, It's so necessary to look away from your computer screen where things are popping up and where some of your strong opinions, some of which are founded upon real measured thought, but many of which are founded on a kind of gut reaction, where those things are challenged. What you're forced to do is listen anew to something and to say that the most successful path through a set of questions is to not go the simplest, flattest, loudest point and rush out, but to move with a lot of attention and with some self-doubt and with a willingness to be persuaded through all of the more nuanced facets of the conversation. So she's sort of talking about our social media racially charged reaction uh, to things like Black Lives Matter and the Trump administration and um, <laughs> all of the other like American tragedies that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, but she's saying like kind of look away from them, right? Right. Look away from that and rather than getting on Twitter, right, think of having, she talks earlier about being quiet. Think about having sort of a quieter, more nuanced, thought-provoking reaction to mm -hmm. that. Um, so later she says, another way of saying that would be, our lives are so much more interesting than the ways that they are described from the outside. We are so much more important to one another as individuals with experiences and questions and histories than we are as social categories. It's important to think about those sources that are saying, wait, you have a mother, and this is your relationship with her, and this is what you wish could be different, and this is what you wish you could return to. I have a mother too, and she looks nothing like yours, but we can have something to say to each other. Those are the kinds of conversations that art fosters. I think they are incredibly necessary right now, always, but at any time that we feel social uncertainty, those are the kinds of conversations that are steadying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it feels evasive. Some of the way I think that she answered this feels very evasive. And I think that, okay, so, me personally, I feel very committed to writing about social issues and writing um, and and engaging with social issues. But I'm also a white woman, right? Mm -hmm. So I have the privilege of saying, you know what, I'm going to write a story. I'm going to write a novel, like every novel that comes out of Columbia University about a, a willowy white woman finding, or a willow, willowy white girl in her 20s finding her sexuality, written by a willowy white girl in her 20s. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah. So, except for 
there are people, there are good yeah, people yeah. My friend, friend, I have a yeah. friend who came out of Columbia, and she's not that. Yeah. But she's, I mean, she's a beautifully, beautiful willowy girl. <laughs> 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 she's a different kind of willowy white woman. Well, no, willowy. she's not a, oh, she's that's not right. a she's white willowy, woman. She's a different type of willowy woman. Yes, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Um, and very talented. Anyway, um, so I think that in a certain way, I can see her saying, some people get to choose, right? Some people get to choose whether they write about social issues or not, and it's white people. And as a poet, that might not be what I'm going to be writing about. But it is. That's what's so crazy, but, is that her poetry is, the, well, at least what we've read of it. Yeah, we. so there's um, attached to this Los Angeles uh Times article is her most recent poem that was published in the New Yorker. It's really good. Um, it's beautiful, but it actually very much is on the topic of it very much is racially charged, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's like 100% um, engaged. It's very yes. engaged. And yeah. it's and it engaged, it's beautiful and it's engaged in a way that doesn't scream at you and Here I am writing about yeah the black female what was it called? woman experience. Um, it was Wade. Uh, Wade, Wade in, in the, the water. water. Yeah, it was it was a great poem. It was great. Um, so that's t the reason I don't love this response is because I feel like it's a little bit of a pageant answer. It's like mm -hmm. a little kind of like you were saying evasive. It feels like oh, I'm not going to touch upon these issues outwardly, um, but I'm going to try to to deal with it inwardly, like on a soul-to-soul -soul level, which in theory, like, sounds great. I also, I, it also might be a, well, to me it's like a matter of taste, like I don't really give a shit about anyone's mother. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. That's not, like, that example was very much like, if I read one more poem about someone's fucking mother, I'm gonna die. Um, <laughs> I also maybe just feel, like, angry. Like, I'm angry at what is happening in the world, and yeah. I'm, like, very, so... <laughs> well, but she also, you know, I think that she's also in a very precarious Place. Right, because yeah. she can't, I mean, of course, the stereotypes of being, like, an angry black woman, but I... And also, like, as a poet laureate under Trump, you know, I think that there's, it's very, it's, there's a lot of precarity, and I think, it seems to me that she's trying to handle it with grace, right? But it's a pageantry answer. It feels yeah. like a very, it feels very, it feels safe, but I can understand why she's coming from that place. I would just... I want, I want fucking, like, I want to burn things down. Right, I want, like, I wonder, I guess I wonder what her answer might be if it wasn't in the Los Angeles Times, if it wasn't yeah. something that was taken from an interview with a white woman poet, right? Like, mm -hmm. what, yeah, what does she really think? Because her poetry is perhaps conveying... But it also, but it also has that subtlety to it. Oh, like totally. it tricks you. Yeah. Like it's like it starts that poem that we read. It like starts out kind of being about love, right? Mm -hmm. And then as soon as like the shackles come in, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, like yeah, I know what this is about. Let's talk about that kind right. of love, like yeah, 
And it's beautiful. It is. Yeah. I just got goosebumps just thinking about mm-hmm. it. It was really, really good. Yeah. I think the part when um, there's a line and it sort of hits a really, like, beautiful lyrical quality at the end. It's so um, good. And there's a line... And it feels, it's talking a lot about love, and maybe at first you think it's, like, a call, I don't know, to, like, a higher power, to, like, a god or a Jesus figure, because it hits this, like, chorus of, like, oh, woods, and then it goes to oh, dogs, oh, tree, oh, gun, and then there's, like, the beautiful rhyme that happens with oh, girl, run, right? And then it's, like, really clear that we're not talking... Yeah. You know, we're not talking about a savior. Yeah. We're, like, talking about the exact opposite. Yeah. So, it's, it's a great it poem. Great. We recommend it. It's, it's called Wait in the Water. Yeah. Um, it's a part of her, I think, her fourth, her fourth book. Yeah. And I tried to get uh, one of my friends, Ashley Bean, poet extraordinaire, on to elucidate uh, some of the qualities of her poetry for us, but it just didn't end up working out. But... Believe me, there will be a poet on here. We're going to get a poet. Why did, maybe poets don't like us. Maybe it's mutual. I don't know. I've got friends who are poets. I was thinking of Tommy Pico, poet. Um, when we were talking <laughs> when we were talking about Walt Whitman, I follow Tommy Pico on Twitter. Yeah. Hashtag follow for follow. Um, and he had a really good tweet this week that said, quote, booty, 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 rockin' everywhere comma, quote, dash, Walt Whitman. Yes. Yeah. Well, he's very, he's Native American, so he's very interested, and his, one of his books was called Nature Poem. It was Correct. a book-length poem mm-hmm. called Nature Poem, um, which he's very interested in um, breaking through um, stereotypes about Native Americans and nature. Correct. Right. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I would love to have him on the show. He has his own podcast called Food for Thought. Um, Thought is spelled T H O T. Yeah, with and there are like four guys on it. And there's a lot of peach emojis. Yeah, a lot of peach emojis. Um, so that's a plug for Tommy Pico. Cool. Yeah. Um, we do know poets. <laughs> I also have a poet friend named Emily. I have a poet friend <laughs> named Jessica. Yeah. See, we know poets. And Ashley Bean. I know um, a pretty famous poet. His name is David Hernandez. That's Perhaps true. you've heard yeah. of him. He's going to be giving me a mid-century modern chair and perhaps some dishes for my new apartment. The so, fuck? like, we know each other. Yeah. See, look, we're ca- we're doing that thing, though, where it's like, oh, I'm not racist. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I don't hate poets. Look at all these poets I know. Anyway, we're going to get him on. David Hernandez would be great to yeah, have Yeah, he would do it. He's really funny. He has great music taste. He's lovely. Yeah. Um, let's talk really quickly about this stupid debate about the fucking MFA again. Look, it happens all the time. <laughs> look, we both have MFAs. How do you feel about your MFA? Worth it? Not worth it? Are you are you thumbs up, mid-thumb, thumb down? Me? Yeah. Well, we just got, um, actually last night we just got an email from the administrator of our department asking all of, a, all of us alums to provide a statement that included our job placement publications and um, success after graduation, and it has become um, a uh, subject of ridicule on all of my, <laughs> on the, on all the text threads I have with my cohort. 
um, because we are all jobless, um, unprepared for the world. We don't have any, I don't know. I have a, I have a, I have a finished project. I think maybe a couple other people do, but not many. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it's different because we were getting paid to go. You got paid to go. Like, it's no, like, I didn't. Not for your MFA, but no. for your PhD. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my MFA is probably the kind... So we were talking about this article from... The, the Strang old. The Stranger. It's an old article. It's... Um, but it came up in my feed recently. Yeah. It's things I can say about MFA writing programs now, but I no longer teach in one, and it's by this asshole named Ryan Boudinot. Jesus Christ, what Fuck a him. fucking name. Um, so my MFA is probably the kind that he is most likely talking about, with the exception of the fact that my professors um, actually gave a shit about you. Really, really gave a shit yeah. about us. And this is going in comparison to my PhD, which was free, which was the highest funded PhD program in the United States, where I think professors... Um, really didn't give shit. Just phoned it in. Yeah, just totally yeah. phoned it in. So, yes, I paid for my MFA. I have the student loans to prove it. I'm very much in debt. I went to my MFA completely unprepared, straight out of my BA, because, like this guy is talking about, I wasn't ready. Right. I mean, everything that he talks about in here kind of describes a little bit of who I was in my MFA. I was a little bothered to do the work. I didn't really know what it meant to be a writer seriously. Um, yeah. But I went because I enjoyed writing and I thought I was kind of good at it and I had gotten a lot of encouraging feedback. But in my MFA, I think I found myself and did realize I wanted to be a real writer. And mm -hmm. I was young, like early 20s, way too young to be in an MFA because mm -hmm. I don't I took it as seriously as I took my PhD, right? Um, but yeah, the main difference was that my professors, my professors changed the entire climate of that MFA. Yeah. Well, and I think that they didn't, they recognized your talent, I think. And I, and it seems like they gave you more support than perhaps they gave other people. Yeah. 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 There were definitely people in my program, though, that were phoning it in times a thousand, like, that were not writing new fiction, and, um... Didn't someone plagiarize, like, Bob Dylan lyrics or something? Um, somebody plagiarized a poem, for sure, in my MFA. They turned in... It, it was really sad, too, because it was a good friend of mine who I think just fell off the deep end, and he turned in a plagiarized poem in his words, to see if people were paying attention. He right. said that he did it because he felt like nobody was paying attention in workshop, nobody cared, nobody was, no one was reading, and so he was like, let me, s he tried to pull a fast one on everybody by turning in a plagiarized poem. Didn't work, right? He got no, kicked yeah. out of the program and is like... That's like number one worst thing you could possibly yeah. do in a graduate program. And I mean, it was a suicide mission. He did it to get, yeah, you to know, get to out. get yeah. out. Like, there's only one reason you do something like that, and it's to, like, get the fuck out. Yeah. Um, but there were people who turned in, like, god-awful stories. There were people who turned in stuff that they wrote, you know, 20 minutes before class started. And they were called out, though, by mm -hmm. our professors. Yeah. Where there is a certain published poet who would come to workshop in my Ph.D., and admit fully to everyone that he did not have the time to read the workshop, the person whose work, whose work was up for the day, mm -hmm. which to me 
is almost just as bad as plagiarizing a story is showing up to workshop completely unprepared and admitting that it. That happened all the time at UCR. And admitting it. Mm -hmm. Hey, I didn't have the chance to read this. And People I feel didn't like admit it. Well, this never happened in my workshops, but it happened in poetry workshops. And they didn't admit it. They just bullshitted. Which is, I think, worse than admitting it. I mean... Just saying fucking nonsense. You know what's better? Don't come to class. Yeah, don't come to don't class. Don't come to class. Do what we've all learned to do at, as adults, which is if you're not prepared, don't go. Yeah. Don't be an idiot. Don't go. Don't go. I mean, it's, it blew my mind that somebody would have the audacity to be like, you know what, I didn't read today, and not only did I not read, but I'm going to come to class and let you know that your writing was so unimportant to me that mm -hmm. I chose to just it's not do it. It's such a dick move. To it's not do it, and move. then to also show up and let you know that I didn't do it. Yeah. But once again, this was happening at programs that people are saying. But they're paying to be there. That's established so crazy. programs. Yeah. These yeah. are the established programs. Yeah. Well, and that's the whole thing. That's what I think, you know, they stopped ranking those MFA programs right before I think UC Riverside would have been ranked, but, but, which sucks for me, but, um, they stopped ranking those programs because it was just so fucking absurd, like, the way they were ranking them, and, like, the, the way, I don't know, whatever. This article, the thing about this article is that it is deceptive, I think it's deceptively wrong, and I, but I also think, and, and it's mean, and this guy sucks, the stranger but um there are also things that i very much agree with okay mm -hmm. so for instance there's one thing he writes that says um you don't need any help to get published disagree 100 percent yeah yeah um it says and then he kind of goes on to talk about um basically essentially that People in MFA programs, writers, don't actually know that the publishing industry isn't transparent. Like, people don't actually know what goes on in editorial meetings at major publishers, which is true, right? And that anyone who tells you otherwise is lying, essentially. But what does go on at editorial meetings and when agents are looking for people is, who do you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Who can recommend you? Who's connected? Who are you who connected, connected to? to? Yeah. Because who you're connected to right. helps determine an audience. And if it's a big audience, then it's better. Right. For them to publish it. Right. Yeah. 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 So I find that whole argument like dodging the actual issue, which is that this guy probably published because he went, did he go to Bennington? Mm -hmm. He went to Bennington. <laughs> which... If, you know, if you haven't heard our take on Bennington, go ahead and go back to episode two or three. We talk about Morrissey a lot, too. Added bonus. Yeah. Oh, oh Eric's here. Oh, somebody's here. <laughs> one, two, one, two. So check this out. This is the jump for right there. Place, I'm gonna tell them to go 
fuck themselves with a stick and a spoon. Wow. I actually do need you to lean in, though, because the levels are quite low. You know what? I'm going to scoot closer to you. We're outside now. <laughs> okay. I have to lean in one more time. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lean out. I'm stealing a joke from that comedy show that I really liked. Um, God, I don't like this yellow jacket. Um, have you seen that? No. Baby Cobra? No, I've never seen that. It's really good. She says, you know what I want to do instead of lean in? I want to lie down. <laughs> <laughs> I want to lay back. Yeah. Lay right. back. All right, so we're outside now um, where the sun is oppressive and it's fueling my hatred for MFA programs so I think it's gonna get heated I don't know I mean here's the deal I'm so <laughs> sick of talking about whether or not MFA programs are worth it this is what I think I think um, if you want to go to an MFA program you should go to an MFA program <laughs> but you should also have the sense to know that it doesn't mean you're gonna get a job um, or get published. Or get published from the words of Lisa Glatt, my mentor, friend, slash second mother. Um, she said, I never promised you a rose garden. The second I told her I wanted to do MFA, she said, I'm not going to promise you a rose garden. And Straight out of Patsy Cline's mouth. And it's and it's true. It's There's not an easy way to do this. There's no easy way to be a writer. There's no degree, there really kind of is no networking, there's kind of nothing that you can do that's going to make your life easy. It's because publishing is so individualistic. Yeah, it Novels sucks. Novels so individualistic. It sucks. As so, we're, to, to return to our first topic on the podcast. So, um, I'm just sick of people debating whether or not it works or not. I think if you, if it works for you, then you should absolutely do it. If it doesn't work for you and you can make a living writing and you can get your own education without getting into a severe amount of debt, then fucking do it. But I also think that um, MFA programs have institutionalized what books get published and what books don't. So if you look at like all of the first time novelists publishing in the literary market right now, they're going to be coming from top MFA programs. So here's, and I know you're listening to this prospective MFA candidate and you're thinking you know what that's not me I'm a really good writer and I'm gonna stand out in my program and everyone's gonna love me and help me the reality of that is that there is if you're a white dude yes you're fucking solid if you're a hot white chick yeah you too you're set go to your MFA programs publish your books get million-dollar book advances do it you're fucking golden Everybody else, you're going to go to your program and people are going to ignore you and you're not going to get any help and you're going to want to die. If you write against the grain of what your instructors write at an MFA program, good luck. Yeah. All, most, I don't even want to generalize, but a lot of instructors are looking for baby themselves. Yeah, because writing involves ego, right? So you want somebody who's going to continue the tradition of what you're doing. Pardon the fireworks. It is the 4th of, of July. Speaking of independence and freedom and ego and yes. succeeding in the fucking world, what is more fucking Americana 
than finding somebody who's exactly like you to carry on your life once you're gone. Absolutely. And then opening all the doors for that person. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in closing, go to an MFA program that pays you to go to it. Absolutely. Do not pay to go to an MFA program because you're never going to pay off your debt. Katrina went to her PhD program and she's going to be teaching creative writing and she's doing quite well. But don't... You I mean, quite well is like an exaggeration. No, I, I might. I have an interview tomorrow for an adjunct position, one course. Yeah, creative writing. I think you'll be fine though. Like I foresee, in the long term, you're gonna be fine. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm gonna be fine. Too. I think you are too. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I should. You're totally gonna no, be fine. No, no, Your no, book's no, no, gonna no. sell. Yeah. I think it's gonna be fine. I think we're both actually gonna be fine. But it was a lot of work. It was a lot of self-doubt. It was a lot of people were actively working against us. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? Actively and it's a lot working of, against like, us. Believing in yourself. Yeah. Like I think I had to believe in myself more than anybody else could believe in me. Yeah. Which is also pretty fucking Americana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a great message. Yeah. So that's our advice from the MFA program. Yeah. Find somebody who's writing. Not necessarily who's writing you respect, but who's writing mirrors what you're trying to do and go to that school. Yeah. It'll, only if it's free. If it's free. Yeah. Yeah. So that's only going to be like, and, and that's another thing that he talks about in this article is that like, there are people shelling out money to go to these MFA programs that don't know the faculty, don't actually know what writing is, like don't know what their career options are. And so there's this, the graduates... Essentially, the MFA means nothing, I think, is what he's saying. Is that it's because so many people have MFAs that they've paid for that just don't really matter. So, um, and it's a great way for the university to make money. To make money. It's a money maker yeah. for the university. Because this is the one thing that I liked. You, as different from getting an MA in like physics or psychology or a foreign language, you don't have to have any skill to enter an MFA program aside from typing. That you pay for. Yeah. Cause the, like you don't have to have a yeah. skill mm -hmm. to go to those programs. No. You can just say, I know how to type mm -hmm. a story onto a word, presser, word processor and press print. Mm -hmm. That's the only qualification you need for a paid MFA. Yeah. And not even all paid MFA. I think some paid MFAs are, can be okay. My, my MFA was paid MFA, and it was real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, on that bleak note, do you want to check in with jo Joyce Carol Oates? Yeah, she's tweeting. She's tweeting. You guys, she has an Instagram now. She does. She's making picture posts now. She's making more images. I think that her Twitter was full of so many cat images, and she had to move to a more image-friendly medium. She might have. Yeah. Her DIY. Um, she was recommended to me on Twitter, or sorry, on Instagram, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, you guys are basically friends now. Yeah, I follow her on Instagram. She was recommended to me. They were like, hey. She retweeted you once. Yeah. You might know. People you may know. Joyce Carol Oates. Um, I just retweeted a Joyce Carol Oates tweet where she's talking I'm like covering the mic where she's talking about New York Times I think it would be easier to go to my tweet probably to find it 
She also, okay, so remember when the Bill Maher scandal of him saying the N-word happened? Yeah. Yeah. She also tweeted a picture of her cat and said to, let's say the cat's name is Sunny, to Sunny, the N-word is nap. Um, disgusting that something, something, it wasn't even disgusting, like it was like kind of a play on like, that Bill Maher said the fucking N-word in like a, and it's not that he just, it's not even that he just said the N-word. He like, he literally said, I'm a house N. It's like, it's really bad. It's Everybody's, really bad. Everyone's retweeting him today. Yeah, I'm sure. That's the thing about fucking liberals. And that's the thing that I thought about Joyce Carol Oates is that she made that post, but I bet she loves Bill Maher. She retweeted him today. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, so the last retweet that I did was one that she did today that says, new, extra W, torque, times, extra N, too great, a newspaper, papper, to need, E at the end, copy editors, extra P. That's a satire. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, I did a quote retweet and said, savage. Savage. All letters, capital spellings well I will tell you here's the thing though is that I actually think Joyce Carol Oates believes in the New York Times I do not I think the New York Times is a fucking bullshit publication that pays its editorial staff uh, an exorbitant wage at the expense of its copy editors and its reporters I think maybe what this is coming maybe what this is about is that perhaps we should stop checking in with Joyce Carol Oates do you think so? I don't know. I don't know if she's really an authority about anything but her cats anymore. Well, but see, I love that about her. It's all, For me, it's not like a check-in, like, let's see what she's thinking. It's kind of a more, like, let's check in on her mental health. But maybe that's also not fun. <laughs> um, I mean, she's going to be okay. She'll be fine. All right, so we're bidding adieu. Wow, this is, like, in-the-moment decision. We're not bidding adieu, but we're maybe, like, um, gonna recon... I think that we need to... I think we need to greatly consider what she's adding to the conversation. Maybe not much. All right, so finally, we will be sending our drink to our dearly departed angel, Dennis Johnson. Yeah. Who died in May? Yeah. June. Do you want to talk a little bit? I mean, it's kind of a it's a memorial right now for him. Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience with Dennis Johnson? Just briefly, what he means to you as a writer? Sure. I think that, uh, I well, I'm going to talk about Jesus' Son because I think it's his most perfect book. Mm -hmm. um, the stories in that are, uh, they... Uh, they make they they elevate language to its greatest capacity. I wow, think, um, and he is someone who is also not just concerned with the self, but also with others, which I think is so great. Mm -hmm. um, I teach the short story work, which is again I'm very concerned with work. My column on plowshares coming out <laughs> July 11 is all about plow work. Plowshares at p shares. At, yeah, yeah, um, but. Um, is all about work in this fascinating and amazing way that yeah. transcends reality and transcends the self in, yeah. I think, a very 
just I mean I'm getting like goosebumps talking. It's like one me of my. Too. It's probably I just my. Got him too. Yeah. It's probably my favorite story of all time. It's so beautiful, um, and it's something that I teach to undergraduates in Texas in Riverside um, that I've sent to friends. They're like fireworks for Dennis Johnson right now. God, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it's something that appeals to young people, to old people, to boys, to girls. It's like, I mean, it's just, it's literally what writing should be. And my boyfriend is obsessed with him right now. He's like reading, he just finished Tree of Smoke and he's reading the next one on the list. But he was a, he was a fucking great talent. And I don't, I don't say much with sincerity. I don't say much positive with sincerity. I much, mostly critique in sincerity. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, uh, he's fantastic and I love him. Yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> ooh, hard to follow. Uh, yeah, I think Dennis Johnson taught me how to be a writer. Yeah. More than any, more than any other writer in the entire world, Dennis Johnson taught me what a story should be, which is that it should be uncomfortable and visceral and, uh, like, so transcendent it's like real like so honest Mm -hmm. and raw and heartbreaking like like heartbreaking beauty and I too am thinking of Jesus son which Mm -hmm. I agree with you is a perfect piece of literature from start to finish it's almost hard for me to pick a story in that collection that um is my favorite. Of course, I was introduced to Johnson with a car crash while hitchhiking, and that's one that I usually teach. Mm -hmm. Um, I teach car crash, but I also teach Beverly Home, and... Yeah, that one's really good. Which is the final story in Jesus' Son, and often I have students who are like, God, all the writing that you assign is so depressing. It's so sad and so depressing. They say, can you think of a a story that has a happy ending? And my go-to is Beverly Home. It's not happy. People aren't, like, dancing. But there's some sort of acceptance. Mm -hmm. And I think of all of the books, Jesus' Son, even though it's stories, to me, reads like a novel, like a composite novel. And the ending of that is really... To me, it ends on this idea of acceptance, Mm -hmm. which is a happy thing, which is, like, a really beautiful, happy thing in a time like this, especially where you can kind of accept yourself and accept the world you live in for all the flaws, all the mistakes, Mm -hmm. um, all the fuck-ups, you can look and just be like, this is where I belong, and this is who I am. Because it's transcending the self. It's transcending the self, yeah. (laughs) So I always think of Johnson and the story Beverly Home, which to me is a beautiful story. Um, I love the story work as well. Like I said, it's very hard for me to think of a Johnson story that is my favorite. I do remember the first time that I read Car Crash While Hitchhiking and when I got to that final line um, and you, you ridiculous people, you expect me to help you. I was uh, like... I just got goosebumps again. Flabbergasted. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Which, you know... He like, knows how to fucking end a story. He really does. He lands yeah. every story. And he does... Like, it's un like these stories should not work. Like, that's the no. thing about the ending of work is that, like, this should not be the ending of work, right? But it is, and right. it's like, how did it happen? I don't know. I mean, it's really great, it's beautiful, and I think the best thing I talk about this a lot when I, I grew up as a, a 
as a ballet dancer. You guys are learning something. And they always said that the best ballet dancers make it look effortless, yeah. right? They can do these things and they make it look as if it was like, oh, nothing. I just do 42 pirouettes when I wake up in the morning and eat my Wheaties, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I feel that way about Dennis Johnson as a writer. He really makes it look effortless. But for, it's not overworked or it's, egoistic. It's not even egoistic. Like it's like right. it feels like this like mutual relationship between the writer and the reader. And that's when you know that writing is working. At yeah. least I feel that way. I don't want to compare myself to Johnson at all, but I know that sometimes when I kind of pull something out and it's like, I don't know if this is gonna work, and then it does, that's the best feeling because it wasn't stressed it just happened yeah and it was natural and real and still is like visceral and moving and all that so we are big fans of Dennis Johnson we love Dennis Johnson we are friends of Dennis Johnson yeah he's also I think I will say this he is a writer that other writers like and that readers also like and and I think that that's something that really speaks to his talent that like writers can kind of understand and, and grasp the framework beneath what he's doing but it's seamless to readers and their enjoyment so so uh as a testament we're um gonna send a shot to dennis johnson we're gonna pour we're gonna pour some of this casa dumets wine shout out our new sponsor casa <laughs> dumets please Hi, keep Sonia. sending us please keep sending us boxes of wine um <laughs> Yeah, we, we want to... It's not Sutter Home Companion. I mean, it's not Sutter Home. And it's not whiskey, as it probably should be for Dennis Johnson. Yeah. He probably would like a shot of wild turkey, but... I think he'd like the Gewürz. He's German, right? Is he German? He was born in Germany. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Wow. This just got kind of perfect. Wow. He was born in Germany. Yeah. So it's, cool. just, it's it, I think he also would appreciate a great wine like Casa Dumets. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> At Casa Dumets Wines. Hashtag. They are also adjacent to Sutter Home Companion. Um, which in is, Los Alamos, In California. Los Alamos, California, which is bought up. Sutter Home has bought up all of the land in that region to make their factory wine. Meanwhile... Casa Dumas is small making producers small. are still making it work and are sourcing grapes from the best vineyards that places like Kendall Jackson that are home Gallo I don't want to get into it but if you guys want to talk about the wine industry hit her up on Twitter this is what I'm doing with my <laughs> MFA all right so the last paragraph of work by Dennis Johnson nurse I sobbed she poured doubles like an angel right up to the lip of the cocktail glass, no measuring. You have a lovely pitching arm. You had to go down to them like a hummingbird over a blossom. I saw her much later, not too many years ago, and when I smiled, she seemed to believe I was making advances, but it was only that I remembered. I'll never forget you. Your husband beat you with an extension cord, and the bus will pull away, leaving you standing there in tears, but you were my mother. What the fuck? Rest in peace, Dennis Johnson. God, what a genius. All right, we have no more, nothing more to say. Yeah. Nothing more. Can All right, uh, go blow something up. Yeah, uh, yeah, go blow up some fireworks. I'm at Tati Supremo. Um, I'm at Cat Prow on Twitter, at Cat underscore Parade on Instagram. Joyce Carol Oates is at Joyce Carol Oates, and then a couple fucking random ass numbers because she's a nut job on Instagram. 
But you shouldn't follow Joyce Carol Oates. We're done with her. Yeah. Just follow us. Um, and uh, check out my column in Plow Shares. <laughs> uh, July through December. I'll see you on the flip side. Third plug, mic drop.